Welcome to Sacred Cinema. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, on 2XXFM People Powered Radio. And on today's show, we are looking at films depicting the interplay between freedom and relationships. Freedom and relationships, do they go together? I think so, in a way, right? Or do they not? Maybe when you hear the word relationship, you think imprisonment. Maybe you think that's the end of freedom. Maybe you're a single guy out there that just loves walking the streets, knowing that when he goes home, there's no obligations whatsoever for you. You do whatever you like and kick back, watch television till 4 a.m. in the morning. Maybe you are happily married. You're driving in your car right now thinking, I love my wife or husband or other, and I find a new sense of freedom all the time through their love. These are the sorts of things, these are the sorts of questions that these films are going to provide insights into. We have a bit of a discussion today about the interplay between these two concepts. When we're talking about freedom, I want to talk specifically about sort of individual freedom, independent freedom. Um, sorry, the, the freedom that an independent individual person might feel. Agency is, I guess, the, the word I'm looking for there. Uh, free will. The, the power to control your surrounding world, to be in charge of your own endeavors and journeys. When I think of uh, freedom and relationships, I think of that scene from Seinfeld uh, where Kramer's talking to Jerry about marriage. They're, they're prisons! You're doing time! Or maybe you're thinking about the song Desperado by the Eagles. You know, freedom? Oh, freedom. Well, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking this whole world alone. It's always coming up in pop culture. Uh, and what are the movies we're going to be talking about that, that explore it? Again, uh, same as always. These films, I'm not saying that these films are just about uh, freedom and relationships. They're about a lot of things. Uh, but I think they provide some really interesting insights into these concepts. The first one we're going to look at is The Piano, the 1993 film directed by Jane Campion, a New Zealander. Uh, and also, we're going to have a quick look at Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Very similar film, uh, and that's a more modern film uh, from 2019, directed by Celine Sciamma, French director. Great film, that one. And then we're going to finish with Paul Thomas Anderson's film, Phantom Thread. And if you can, if you couldn't tell already, I am a massive Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Uh, as I guess anyone is who goes to the movies. He's fantastic. Uh, I really wanted to talk about Phantom Thread last week when we talked about authority figures. Um, but I figured we'd save it because it's it's just says some great stuff about relationships. Um, but before we get stuck into the movies, let's talk about how these concepts are sort of explored in culture more generally, or have been explored in culture more generally. Uh, I've gone back to the ancient stories, uh, the stories of old, Greek myths, Pather. Patho or Patho, I, I believe it's Path. Uh, sorry, Patho, the goddess of. Seduction and persuasion, very often the companion of Aphrodite, who is the goddess of you know love, beauty, and all, all those beautiful things. So, what's that sort of saying? You know that that in order to fall in love, or when, whenever love is present, so is persuasion. That when someone falls in love with someone, that's that's because there's some element of persuasion. They're they're doing something. They're falling into something that they wouldn't have otherwise fallen into. That there is there's a power dynamic. That there's power at play when love is is uh, at play well, but perhaps perhaps that's that is what that's lifting up we'll, we'll find out a little bit more about that as we go into the films and then also in um sort of modern times in the in the zeitgeist i think we can't talk about relationships and power 
sorry, freedom and relationships or power as well. Like, I, power is definitely um, tied up in all of this as well. Power is, I guess, freedom in one sense. If an individual uh, exercises power, they, they, they are exercising their freedom. But if someone is disempowered, power is at play in that sense. I guess they're having, you know, their freedoms, they're, there's an in, they're being inhibited from enjoying their freedoms. But anyway, I don't think we can have a conversation about freedom and relationships without talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the post-Me Too era. Uh, it seems that whenever relations of any kind, uh, sexual relationships specifically, but sort of whenever there's any questions of relations and uh, relationships between public figures or even people that you know, perhaps, it seems we're always asking questions about who had the power in the situation? What's going on there? It, you know, was there a natural power imbalance in the interplay between these two people, which meant that that person got that thing and that person didn't? Um, so we're always talking about power and we're always talking about freedom when we're talking about relationships these days. So maybe there's some lessons that we can learn from the films. Let's get to them, shall we? So the first one, the piano, Jane Campion, um, a prolific director, very, very often um, uh, but from from other big film goers um, around the world. Uh, Criterion Collection, for example, they love Jane Campion, one of the few directors from uh, New Zealand or Australia that has quite a lot of uh, critical, has received a lot of critical acclaim from from the big dogs out there. Um, and if you haven't seen this one, it's set in New Zealand in the, I guess, the mid 1800s, the 19th century, and it centres on the character of Ada, who was played by Holly Hunter. People might know Holly Hunter from um, Raising Arizona. She's also uh, the voice of, I think, the mum in um, Incredibles. And she plays Ada, who um, has been sort of sold off to uh, be married in New Zealand. She's originally Scottish, as a lot of immigrants from Europe into Scotland were. Uh, And she's marrying this man, this gentleman named Alastair Stewart, portrayed by Sam Neill, uh, Canberra local now. I should add. I hope you're listening, Sam. Love your work. Uh, and it's really important to mention, um, uh, Ada brings with her her daughter, number one, very important uh, character in the film. Won't get a, won't be discussed much today, but uh, definitely warrants some discussion in perhaps a, a future episode or just with you and your friends talking about the film. Um, and also her most prized possession, her piano. So Ada is bringing her daughter and her piano. Now, the piano was very important to Ada. And that is because, well, at least I like to think, because she's a mute uh, she doesn't speak. She doesn't talk. She doesn't verbalize words. Her only means, her sole means of expression is her piano. And that has, obviously that's literally the case, but that's got a lot of metaphorical value in this film. And I think that's the best lens to through which uh, you should look at this film, that, that the piano is this metaphor. It's a symbol for her voice. And when I say voice, I mean her agency, her capacity to express herself. Uh, we're, we're talking about personal expression. We're talking about someone's ability to negotiate, their ability to express dissatisfaction or defiance or opposition or, or perhaps satisfaction and agreement and consent. Um, and and we'll, we'll sort of get into that in just a moment. So whenever you hear me um, talking about the piano, that's that's a metaphor. That's a symbol for her agency. That's a symbol for her, not her soul so much, but her inner voice, her um you know, her true self coming through. Now, there is a bit of a problem though, because that piano gets left on the beach. And I actually, I actually think I've been to this beach, by the way, when I went to New Zealand with my mum when I was 10, I actually think we went to this beach, or at least she swears we did. And, um, because it's a big piano, you can't just lug that through the forest, you know, this, this rainforest, because uh, Sam Neill lives sort of in the wilderness. This is 1800s New Zealand. It's not a big sprawling metropolis um, like it is today. Um, so, 
uh, Ada says, I want this piano. You've got to give me this piano back, or at least she says this through her, her daughter. And he says, right, there's this young fella. His name is George Baines, and he's played by Harvey Keitel. And he's a Scottish immigrant himself as well, but has some Maori um, tattoos on as well. So I think it's implied that he's sort of integrated. He's more New Zealander than he is uh, Scottish at this point. And he says, look, this guy will go get it for you, and uh, it'll be on the proviso that it stays at his house. We can't be making a racket um, in the Stuart household. And so Ada starts to form this relationship with George. And this is sort of the main uh, romantic relationship that ensues in the film. Now, I don't want to give too much of the film away. We're, we're going to sort of stick to one specific sequence of the film. And it's what I like to call the bargaining sequence. So once George gets this piano back to his place, uh, it's pretty clear that he's starting to lust over Ada. He, he has the hots for her. Uh, and look, this is, I think, uh, you know, a big part of this film is the sort of the oppressive nature of, of nature itself, the oppressive nature of civility and, and, and puritanical practices. So I don't want to skip over this, um, but I'll only be brief about it. I, I think something that needs to be understood when you watch this film is that it is sort of um, tied to its context. And you've got to imagine if, if you're sort of living in that time, I don't want to say if you're a man living in that time, or if you're a woman living in that time. I think if you're a person living in that time, um, and you're living in the wilderness, and you don't really, you're not really meeting many people, and, and you're chopping wood all day, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you, your your sexual desires and your sexual urges are, um, they're acute. Let me put it that way. They're acute. And there's some scenes in this film where um, I guess we bring into question uh, what's okay and what's sort of um, a little bit um, going too far. But I think that's actually the point, and we're going to really um, uh, dig into that now. So in this bargaining sequence. Um, George sort of says to Ada, look, I'll let you have this piano back, but you've got to come over to my house and give me piano lessons. And I put that in quotation marks uh, for anyone uh, that can't see me, which is everyone that's listening. Um, and what he means by that is he, he, he's, he's starting to lust over her. He wants to see her. He wants um, to get to know her, if you get if you get what I'm saying. And... Um, at first glance, you could think that this is sort of a, you know, if, I guess if you were a libertarian, you, you could say that this is a pretty fair transaction. You know, she's saying, uh, he's asking whether he can sort of look at her shoe, uh, look at her feet and look at her knees and ex in exchange, she'll eventually get her piano back. And they have a little prize system as well. It's quite cute. It's sort of one key, one piano key per lesson with the idea of eventually uh, acquiring enough keys that you have the whole piano and, you, and she gets it from there. Uh, and, and I guess from that libertarian view, this is a consensual agreement. But to me, I think this... There's an illusion of agency here. It's, it's an illusion. Um, because let's go back. This piano is not just an instrument to her. It's not just an object. It's a part of who she is. It's her voice. It's, it's something that she can't live without. To live without her voice. For a person to live without a sense of agency is not to live at all. You can never exercise any personal freedom. So ironically, she is trying to negotiate, she's trying to consent to this agreement without having any means to exercise any power or agency. She doesn't have a voice at this point. That's the very thing that she's trying to negotiate to acquire. So going from there, as Harvey Keitel's character, as George starts to um, gain more and more feelings for her and starts to fall, fall deeper and deeper in love with her, it becomes all the more tragic because he soon discovers that until she has this piano in her actual possession, until she owns it, until she has a voice, he can never be sure whether his feelings are being reciprocated. And as a viewer, we get it's, it's shot so well. As a viewer, we sort of get that impression as well. She's a very steadfast, very strong-willed person. And, and part of you thinks she doesn't want to have a, she doesn't want a piece of him. But the other part of you is like, well, 
he, he's, a, he's a handsome guy. Maybe she does. You know, she hasn't probably been with a man in, in many months. He's a handsome guy. He obviously loves her a lot. He loves how she plays the piano. That's a really important aspect of the relationship, I think. is It's not that just she's, she's just a woman. There's plenty of women in this community. I think he does sort of fall in love with how she expresses herself as well. So there is sort of, I think it does lift up these ideas of falling in love with someone for who they are as well. So I think she does respect that. But throughout this time, as he as he's trying to make advances on her and, and tries to show her how much he loves her, he actually becomes increasingly frustrated because he he becomes he comes to realize that he's never going to know for sure that she actually reciprocates uh, those feelings until she gets her voice back to her, so until she gets that piano back in her possession. And there's a quote from the film that I'd like to read. Um, when he, he eventually gives the piano back and he says, I have given the piano back to you. I've had enough. The arrangement is making you a whore and me wretched. So he can tell that it, it, it's ruining both himself and the person he loves. He doesn't, he doesn't want the person he loves to go on without a voice. And what do you know, when she finally gets the piano back in her possession and she runs back to his house, this is sort of that triumphant point in the film where we can be assured all parties, both us, the, 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 the audience members and the parties to the relationship, that, that love is truly in the air. And I guess that's lifting up something quite sort of thematic, something um, quite conceptual, which is, I guess someone could love someone when they had no other choice. Uh, and I guess that's sort of a very Stockholm syndrome kind of view of things. I guess I guess someone could love someone if they were the only person they ever met, but you could never know. As long as a relationship is built around dependence or reliance, or better yet, based around necessity, such as her arranged marriage with Sam Neill's character, such as Ada's marriage with Sam Neill's character, you can never be sure that love is, is truly present. And until that piano goes back uh, in her possession, Harvey Keitel's character and her relationship is, again, one of necessity. She has to engage in a relationship with him because she has to get her voice back. So it's so it transitions from this relationship built upon necessity to a relationship built upon desire because she finally has a choice. And it's ironically the fact that she can walk away, which is the way that she knows that she is in love with him. The fact that there is an alternative, the fact that she has a choice is the proof that she loves him. And I think that's getting into this territory of forbidden love and why as human beings, we love stories about forbidden love. Because when there's an instance of forbidden love, that's indicating that love exists despite the fact that it doesn't have to. Not only that, it exists despite the fact that the parties actually aren't acting in their best interest. In the context of a Romeo and Juliet type situation, it would be much better for Romeo and Juliet to part ways and go and marry people and their own respective families. Well, that sounds a bit strange, but you get what I mean. It's the fact that they shouldn't be in love means that it's definitely based on love. It's definitely based on desire. It couldn't be based on anything else. It's not based on pragmatism. It's not based on necessity. It's not based on some kind of obligation. So let's now move into another story, which to me, I want to look at it today sort of in, in the context of how it celebrates um, the idea of two people with agency falling in love. And, and I think this whole, this film is, is, is based around the idea of telling a love story where there is, and this is sort of Skiama. We're talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire now. Skiama has publicly said that this is sort of a love story without conflict. She wanted to make a story because she's sort of frustrated with films like Titanic and things where, where the, the characters have to die to create any interesting um, plot points. You know, if two people fall in love, that's boring. She wanted to say, well, why don't we tell a story where there isn't tension? Why don't we tell a story where two people are equals and in love. So, Portrait of a, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, was a film from 2019, and it stars Naomi Merlant 
and Adele Hainel. And uh, Naomi plays Marianne, who is an artist. And Adele plays Eloise, who is, uh, again, arranged to be married. And there's another 18th, uh, sorry, uh, 19th century film. Uh, Eloise is arranged to be married to this wealthy fella in, uh, I think it's Brittany in France. And Marianne is tasked with painting um, Eloise. And they do, they both fall in love. And now I think this film makes a lot of sort of assumptions about the influence of the patriarchy and the idea that you can't have a, a sort of consent. Well, I don't want to put words in its mouth, but I, it, it's sort of of a, a, a fairly modern feminist um, ilk. Um, which is sort of, it's hard to tell a story without conflict, a love story without conflict, if one of the characters is a man, especially of this time, and benefiting from male privilege, and, and the, the other is a woman who's who's oppressed. Um, so I think this this film sort of making those kinds of assumptions and saying, look, they're both women here. Um, and also the fact that they, they really um, don't need to be with each other, because obviously a same-sex relationship at this time in history and in, in this part of the world uh, is is frowned upon, to say the least. Say the least. Then also, I mean, um, Eloise is meant to be marrying, marrying this this young fella. So it's it's this relationship is not meant to be, but it happens anyway. And there's this really beautiful symbol in the film, and, and Skiama has talked about this publicly. Uh, this is fantastic. If, if you if you like film, you've got to look up this uh, interview that Celine Skiama did. I think it was for the BAFTA Guru, uh, but one of those BAFTA Guru. Um, interviews and she talks about how to write a script and talking about desires and things like that and she talks about the idea of of she wanted to make consent sexy in other words she wanted to make a relationship where two people are acting um, with agency, where they're exercising free will, sexy. And this is fantastic metaphor. Just before their first kiss, they both have these scarves over their mouths and they're looking in each other's eyes and they pull the scarves down, such as to say, I consent. I, but it, but it's not in a rigid sort of um, uh, creepy or... or, or um, uh, Light mood light lightening way, uh, which is to say, you know, oh, do you consent to kiss me? It's it's this sort of sensual erotic um, pulling down of a scarf, which symbolizes to each other that they that they do love each other. So we're getting sort of when we're talking about um, films to do with uh, forbidden love, um, we're definitely talking about um, films where the where the, the those the characters in love uh, are exercising free will and agency. But I now want to get onto the question of. Is there a cost to that? And what, and what do I mean by that? Surely, you know, from the films we've discussed so far, surely uh, being able to exercise agency, being able to exercise free will is always a good thing. You know? um, we don't want to have to sacrifice too much when we get into a relationship. We want to be able to take all the things that we had when we were a single person, you know, um, sort of all the freedoms that we have to, to be carefree. Don't we want to take that with us as we move forward in life? Well, there's a funny little film called Phantom Thread that I think throws a bit of a spanner in the works and sort of brings into question that perhaps too much agency, too much freedom possessed by one person or maybe both people can hinder a relationship. And maybe we need to rethink the role of freedom in a relationship or maybe rethink freedom itself. Now, I've got a really interesting personal connection with Phantom Thread, and it does tie in with the themes of today's show. So I'm going to take us on a little trip through um, through my experience with this film. Uh, I originally saw the film when it came out, and uh, if you haven't seen the film, it, it, it follows the story of uh, Reynolds Woodcock, who's played by Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, it's his final performance in a film, by the way, and it is exquisite. It's a brilliant um, uh, portrayal. 
uh, of the character. And he's this obsessive artist type. Um, Paul Tom Sanderson sort of talked about how he wanted to do a film about a dressmaker um, because uh, it's, it's great, it's very cinematic. But he, he really wants to tell a story about an obsessive artist um, who is very um, solitary all the time, needs to be focused, can't have any distractions, very, very particular. Um, it almost has like a, a sense a issue with you know a sensory issue. You can't have too many distractions, um, and he begins um, a relationship with uh, it's it's sort of implied that I think he's had lots of girlfriends over his time, and he 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 starts this new relationship with um, Alma, who's played by Vicky Creeps, and he meets her just at a bed and breakfast somewhere in on the on the, sort of the outskirts of England somewhere. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, she's just another young girl that he's got to live at their house. Because the, the film starts with this other girl there and she sort of leaves. So it's sort of implied that he's had lots of girlfriends. And the film sort of follows the ups and downs of their relationship. And I, I, I don't want to give away the film, uh, the ending of the film, if you haven't seen it. So if you, if you, if you don't want to find out what happened, uh, block your ears or, or turn it off just for the next uh, 30 seconds. But what I want to talk about specifically in this film is, is the, the climax, the ending, um, the eating of the mushrooms for those that have seen it. And I remember it, it struck me when I first saw this film. How could the film end like this? And I, at this point, I didn't have much, uh, this is sort of say a bit about my personal life. I didn't have much experience in relationships or at least didn't have much experience in uh, emotionally uh, arduous relationships. Let, let me put it that way. And I was like, how is this way? How is this the final climax of the film that this guy is smiling at the fact that his wife has um, poisoned him? Is it, is it maybe that he, he respects the fact that she's challenging him? Is it a question of respect or something like that? And then I saw uh, a couple of years passed and I saw a couple of other films. I saw Tony Richardson's film from 1959, Look Back in Anger. And I also saw uh, Jean Cocteau's film um, from 1950, uh, Orpheus. And very interestingly, Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, has a lot of throws to Orpheus a lot and and alludes to it a lot as well. And in these other two films as um, as well, you have these not just climaxes, but these these climactic points in the film where you have these domineering, bullish male protagonists who I mean, especially in Don't Look Back in Anger. I mean, Orpheus as well, but in, I mean, um, Richard Burton's portrayal in that film is just. I don't want to say stunning in a good sense, but like it just leaves you breathless. How much of a how abusive he is, how emotionally abusive he is, um, and 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 all of these films have this moment where this domineering male character is suddenly confronted by a female uh, character who who's finally stands up to him, and in that moment when she stands up, he, he falls in love with her, and they kiss, and this happens in all three of these films. Um, in in Orpheus, he falls in love with Death, which I believe doesn't actually happen in the original myth. Um, it's something that Cocteau wanted to throw in there, I guess. Uh, and especially in Don't Look Back in Anger when he, when he kisses, um, his wife's friend. It took me by surprise, but at the same time, I was like, well, of course, after seeing Phantom Thread. So I, so I went back to Phantom Thread and I gave it another rewatch and, and I think I get it now. <laughs> so going back to the idea of freedom and relationships, why is it that Reynolds gives a big smirk? when he's poisoned at the end of that film? What, what is it that finally turns him around? Or at least throughout the film, why is it that he keeps falling in love with Alma every time that she looks after him, every time he's sick? The first part of me thinks that it comes from a place of respect. Um, he, he sort of respects how honest she is uh, or respects how sort of brave she is in a way that, that she's standing up to him and that that's maybe something that's quite virtuous in his view. Or perhaps it's that... He, he likes the fact that she's accepting that he's a human being and, and that by, by, by poisoning him, she's, she, she's asserting that he's flawed and that he's a human and he's mortal 
And I think those things are part of it. But to me, the way I like to think of it is that it's a it's it's she's signaling a tacit agreement um, that they that they should dominate each other in shifts, that they should exercise power interchangeably. That like like that like she's saying to her, let's be honest. A relationship where two people have an equal uh, an equal possess an equal amount of power is a farce. It's it's mythical. It's not real. What we want is it, it's almost like this capitalistic idea, you know, like 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 it's like comparative advantage, but in a relationship form. Like we're both going to need to be powerful in different times of the day or at different times of our life. If you want to be an exquisite dressmaker, there's going to need to be patches of your life where you need to dominate, where you need to be a bully, where you need to possess a great deal of power. And I think that's why the quote ends after she gives him the mushroom she says i want you flat on your back helpless tender open with only me to help and then i want you strong again it's sort of embracing this exchange in power and and i guess allowing each other to indulge the full potential of their agency when it's appropriate for each of them and i guess that this lifts up a question of well does that mean in order to be in a good relationship to be in a healthy relationship you need to give up your freedom but i think it's more dynamic than that it's not that they're giving up freedom so much as they're giving up certain types of freedom certain instances of freedom she's giving up um the freedom to go in and interrupt him when he is designing his dresses, but he's also giving up the freedom to work when she wants to take care of him, when she wants to go out dancing. And that's not really um, relinquishing freedom for nothing else. It's almost like, it's almost like you are, you are investing sacrifice for new freedoms. Let's look at the, let's look at this in the example of the film. Uh, if, if Alma doesn't give Reynolds the freedom to 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 be obsessive over his dresses, well, she relinquishes the freedom that she gains from that to work in the London fashion industry. She well, she also gives up their means of making money and living in a beautiful house. And similarly for Reynolds, and this is going to go a bit too deep while we only have a few minutes left, by relinquishing some power and control when he's lying flat on his back and helpless, as, as Alma puts it, He's gaining new freedoms where he gets to be a little boy again and he gets to sort of embrace that kind of dynamic that he had with his mother and with Cyril, his sister. So it's not so much that they're giving up freedoms, but they're gaining new ones in investing through sacrifice. So what are the lessons that we can draw from these three films this week? Well, the first one is that agency, what is agency in a relationship? Well, agency is about choice. It's about being able to choose to not be with someone or to be with someone else not to be with someone just out of sheer obligation or force. And I guess without agency, without that ability to choose, um, the other person can never be sure whether that you truly love them or whether it's coming from a place of necessity. And I guess that sort of lifts up this idea of that the, the freer someone is, the, the more that you know that they love you if they stay with you. So perhaps in our own relationships, rather than try and inhibit our partner's freedoms, Maybe we need to feed them and give them more freedom in order to determine what is it that they actually desire. Is it us? And what are the sorts of things that we can do to give these people, to give our partners new freedoms, to make them experience a new sense of what it means to be in a relationship? Now, that's all well and good. Um, but what are we actually talking about when we're talking about freedom? If we're, if we're giving our partners more freedom and, and, and giving ourselves more of an opportunity to find out what they like and what they like about us, what is it that we're actually giving them? Well, perhaps in a strange way, 
It is by giving ourselves more freedom, or in other words, being more of ourselves, embracing the things about us that we love the most, pursuing the things that we obsess over, and following the things that we're passionate about. We are actually affording our partners new freedoms, but we need to ensure that we allow them to do the same to us, and that when they are being themselves, and when they are embracing what makes them who they are, that we take a back seat, and we embrace that about them, and we try and realize what is... what we can gain from that and how that helps us as well. Well, that's been Sacred Cinema for this week. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi on 2XXFM People Powered Radio. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and please get in contact with us if you'd like to give us any feedback or any recommendations for future show episode uh, ideas uh, or films that you'd like us to take a look at. Just hop on Facebook and search Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Bernasconi. We'd love to hear from you. Um, but until next time, uh, keep going on the movies and stay sacred, everybody. Cheers.